Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. Every week or so, one minister or another is accused of being in breach of the ministerial code. Suella Braverman asked her civil servants whether she could avoid doing a speed awareness course. There were questions about whether her links to Rwanda had finessed her deal with the government there. In Scotland, an SNP minister was accused of delaying rail works to favour her constituents. But what is the ministerial code and why does it seem to be so toothless? Are politicians just ignoring it? And would they do that if they were still expected to resign if they breached it? Tim Durrant is a programme director at the Institute for Government, and he knows the code inside out. Welcome to The Bunker, Tim. Hi, Ros. Great to be here. Let's start with Suella Braverman, because that's the most recent story. Rishi Sunak decided that she hadn't breached the code when she tried to do her speed awareness course privately. Was that the right judgment? I think it probably was, or at least I think it's probably the right outcome. You know, the code is a multitude of things. It covers sort of very basic government processes about how cabinet ministers write to each other and when they can use their government cars, through to kind of big ethical questions about managing the conflict between private interests and kind of public duties. And the Braverman case, I think, had it happened in isolation, a minister got a speeding ticket and was looking into ways to do a private speed awareness course, I think it wouldn't have been the big story that it became. The fact that she was the Home Secretary and Attorney General when she actually was found to be speeding added a kind of extra dimension to it because, you know, she's responsible for kind of law enforcement, upholding law and order. But also, obviously, the kind of controversy around her individually. Sort of, She's quite a controversial person. A lot of people disagree with a lot of her policies. And she was found to have broken the ministerial code under Liz Truss. So there's this, all this kind of baggage around it. I actually think, though, what she did was seemingly try and ask civil servants for advice on whether or not they could find a way of, of arranging this. And she's entitled to ask. The civil servant said, no, Minister, we can't help you with this. And a different solution was found. I think that's really, that's fine. For me, the big outstanding question in the whole episode is um, around her special advisor and what he is reported to have told the Mirror. When they asked, did Suella Brothman get a speeding ticket? He said, no, she didn't. And that, I think, that still hasn't been resolved. Exactly what happened there? Did he know about the speeding ticket and say something that wasn't true? Or did he not know and kind of make a, an error of judgment? And I think that actually is the more serious question there, because we need to know that information coming from the government is honest and is true. And if that advisor said something that wasn't true and did that knowingly, I think that's a real problem. But it wouldn't actually be a breach of the ministerial code, obviously. Well, no. So special advisors subject to the special advisor code. But Braverman, as his boss, you know, she has a, a kind of requirement to ensure that her advisors are keeping to their code as well as she keeping to hers. So there's a key bit of the ministerial code which says ministers must ensure that no conflict arises or could reasonably be perceived to arise between their public duties and their private interests, financial or otherwise. And that's a key phrase, isn't it? Could reasonably be perceived to arise because sometimes we can't truly know whether the intent was there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, as you say, we, we, we can't know what 
people were intending to do. And, uh, you know, this comes back to um, the, the questions around Boris Johnson and misleading Parliament as well. The, the question there is um, that the Privileges Committee are looking into is did he knowingly mislead Parliament? Well, how can an external person really judge whether he was doing that knowingly or not. At the same time, I think the uh, the other important point of that sentence is the perception of conflict of interest. And the point that the ministerial code is trying to make, I think, is ministers have huge amounts of power and sort of responsibility in public life. And it's therefore incumbent on them to show that they, you know, that they merit that and that they are holding themselves and the prime minister is holding them to super high standards. And we can expect that they would try and work hard to ensure both the avoidance of conflicts of interest, but the avoidance of any perception of conflicts of interest. So Sunak brought in his ethics advisor, a man called Laurie Magnus, to rule on the Braverman case. Did he have to do that? No, he didn't have to do that. It's entirely his choice. And there wasn't a full investigation by Sir Laurie this time. The Prime Minister just asked him kind of what he thought about it. So um, it's entirely up to the Prime Minister how to enforce the ministerial code. He is the sole arbiter of, of the ministerial code and he he could ask his independent advisor, he could just talk to the minister in question, he could ask the cabinet office different officials to, to look into things. But there is no kind of formal requirement for the independent advisor to get involved in every allegation. So that's a problem, isn't it, to have the sole arbiter being the Prime Minister himself or herself. Who judges the judge in the end? I think that's, it's a really important question. I think it seems like an issue in that obviously there is a an incentive for the Prime Minister to want to protect political allies. And we saw this, for example, when um, Boris Johnson rejected the findings of his independent advisor that Priti Patel was bullying Home Office officials. He said, actually, no, I don't consider that she has broken the ministerial code. And he there, were, there was sort of briefing about, um, you know, being very supportive of Priti Patel against the allegations from civil servants. At the same time, the way our system works, the Prime Minister is the only person who chooses the members of his or her government. And therefore, I think it is correct that they are the only person who can choose whether or not those people can continue to serve in government. And they, the Prime Minister, have to show and uphold that they want the standards to be upheld and show that they are upholding them themselves. The argument against any other form of judge or sort of independent kind of decision maker on this stuff is that you could then conceivably have someone who hasn't been elected to serve in the House of Commons and chosen by the elected Prime Minister to be a member of the government making a decision about the future careers of elected members of government. So there is similar to how MPs are the kind of judges of other MPs when they reaches of parliamentary standards, the view that it should only be the members of the elected government and the Prime Minister as their boss who can make those decisions. And I think I think that's right. You know, we live in a democracy, we elect our government through the House of Commons, and it has to be for the person leading that government to sh- show that they are in charge and that they are the ones who's making those decisions. I think you could almost argue, actually, that the removal of Boris Johnson was this system working. So Boris Johnson was eventually taken down by his party, and there were enough people who resigned from his government and said, we don't think you are capable of being prime minister anymore. And it showed that their political calculation had changed because he and the issues that he was facing around ethics and, and questions of, of judgment were causing such problems for the party that they were prepared to say, OK, we need a change. And so I think actually that shows that, you know, the democratic assessment actually came to bear on, on him. And I think it did work. It took a long time, but it did work. It, well, it did take a long time. It was quite cumulative, wasn't it? I mean, it clearly wasn't just the issue of Priti Patel breaching the ministerial code and his ethics advisor resigning over that that prompted it. I mean, we we got into the weeds of Chris Pincher and it just yeah. seemed like furore after furore. It, it did feel like a watershed 
moment, though, didn't it, when he decided to ignore that advice? Did you feel that at the time? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was the first time that a an independent advisor had resigned um, from the government because the prime minister didn't follow their advice, uh, or, or rather didn't accept their judgment. So what um, uh, Sir Alex Allen, who was the advisor at the time, said was that he thought Priti Patel had broken the ministerial code and Boris Johnson said, actually, no, I don't think she has. So that was a real sort of challenge to Alex Allen's kind of position, and, and he he felt he had no position to resign. So it was absolutely a big moment. And I think it's interesting sort of looking back on it now, because obviously that was before all those that news broke before all the news about the parties in Downing Street, and as you say, all the kind of questions around Chris Pincher. There were also, during Boris Johnson's government, there was obviously the kind of lobbying scandal, so David Cameron and Greensill, and then um, Owen Patterson, who had to resign as an MP in the end. So at the time, it felt like a big thing, but actually it was kind of just one, as it later turned out, of many issues that happened under Johnson's government that weren't necessarily connected, but led to this sense of there is a real problem in the way that ethics are upheld and enforced in government and a change is needed. It does rely a lot on the sort of good chap theory of politics, doesn't it? The idea that prime ministers will do the right thing if ministers breach the code and that prime prime ministers will behave responsibly anyway. And as you point out, we got to the point with Boris Johnson where his uh, cabinet decided that they couldn't tolerate his behaviour anymore. And that was obviously a good thing. But will it always be like that? Will someone one day come along who can get away with breaking the rules? And are the safeguards enough, is what I'm saying, to ensure that we can rely on this ministerial code being upheld? It's it's a really good question. I mean, I think, I don't think there's anything wrong with expecting political leaders to be good people. I think we should hold to that. I think that's a reasonable expectation to have. And we should we should hold them to that. So people, you know, journalists should probe these things. People should write to their MPs if they don't think um, uh, political leaders are, are upholding standards. That is a good expectation for a democratic society to have. So we have the um, the the sort of the political constitution whereby it's up to a political party to put pressure on their leader to behave properly. And I think nine times out of 10, that system does work. And partly... It's because nine times out of 10, the prime minister is very aware of the political pressure that he or she is facing from, you know, it's easy to think about recent examples, but, you know, going back further in time under Theresa May, there were a couple of people who had to resign because of ministerial code allegations or breaches. And she she sort of made that judgment. She said, you know, the time has come. And that was because of whether it was press pressure or sort of public pressure. The prime minister is always going to be very sensitive to that kind of pressure. The biggest issue that we had under Johnson was when it was the Prime Minister himself who was being accused of breaching standards and indeed did breach standards. And obviously there is a a direct conflict of interest there where he's supposed to be upholding them, but he is the one who he needs to be upholding against. So, So I think that's a very specific example of when that kind of good chaps theory struggles, when the good chap is the one who is being investigated. So are things improving now? Because we saw Dominic Raab resign after finding that he'd broken the ministerial code, even though he clearly didn't think that he had. And Nadine Zahawi as well. Are we back on an even keel? I think we're heading that way. So since Sunak came in as prime minister, he's made a big deal of wanting to kind of improve the way that standards are upheld, improve the kind of 
ethical image of his government, I think. So when he entered Downing Street, his first speech, he talked about integrity, professionalism and accountability at every level of government. And clearly, he does want to take a different approach to what Boris Johnson uh, was doing. So for each of those cases you cited with Dominic Raab, he asked a, a lawyer to look into those bullying investigations. And with Nadim Zahawi, he asked the independent advisor to look into the uh, what he'd done with his tax affairs. So if you contrast it with Boris Johnson, right, what Johnson would do is say, there's nothing here, case closed, I fully support the minister. And then more revelations would come out and maybe eventually they'd have to resign, but not because of something that the prime minister necessarily had done. So Sunak clearly wants to do things differently. And I think that's good. It's positive. It'll be interesting to see what happens if there is a change of government in the next couple of years. So Labour have been very critical of all of these issues that we've been talking about inside government. Angela Rayner often has an urgent question in the Commons when she's sort of criticising whichever minister is accused of having reached whichever bit of the code. And they've been very clear that they want a a new independent commission on ethics, they're calling it, so kind of more separate from government, more independent, more able to do investigations. Um, if they do get into government and if they do implement that, it'll be really interesting to see how that works and if that changes things. But I think, as we were saying earlier, the kind of cumulative effect of all of the scandals throughout 2020, 2021, 22 meant that by the time Sunak came in, it was really clear that sort of change was needed and a new approach was needed. And I think both the major parties have realised that and are trying to kind of do that in their own way. That does sound like a very Keir Starmer initiative. It does, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so Gus O'Donnell, who's a, we would call a mandra in the former head of the civil service, he told an Institute for Government event last week, maybe you were there, that ministers shouldn't automatically have to resign for breaching the code. Do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think this is really important because despite everything I've been saying, I think part of the issue that we've got into in the last couple of years in the kind of debate around the code is that it's held up as some sort of almost sacred text that, you know, defines everything in public life and, and anyone who's sort of seen or even alleged to have done anything that's potentially contrary to it must resign. And I think that's actually really unhelpful. Um, I mean, just by way of sort of you know, a quick history lesson. The Ministerial Code has only existed as the Ministerial Code since 1997. Tony Blair was the first Prime Minister to publish a document under that name. John Major published an earlier version called Questions of Procedure for Ministers, and that document has existed for decades before it was published. But it's not a sort of, you know, Magna Carta-esque kind of fundamental thousand-year-old part of our constitution. It is a relatively recent initiative. That's not to say it's a bad thing, but it has I think in recent years kind of acquired the status that means any kind of debate around it, I think, becomes incredibly polarising immediately. And people say, OK, well, they've been accused of breaching the ministerial code, therefore they must resign. And actually, ministerial code is quite long. It has lots of stuff in it, including, as I was saying, about how ministerial cars should be used or which ministers can attend which type of cabinet committee. And I think everybody realises that those kind of things, while ministers might make an embarrassing mistake there, is not a resigning offence. So, the code was always, I think, implicit that there was a range of, of sanctions available. And actually, in, I think, 2012, uh, Baroness Varsi was found to have broken the code. David Cameron said, I just want an apology. That's fine. And that's what she did. And everyone moved on. So I think the code is now explicit that a range of sanctions is available. And I think that's healthy. It means there's better debate. It means that there's more of an incentive for a prime minister to heed allegations and look into them and ask for investigations rather than just trying to shut that down the debate because they don't want to lose a member of their team. So yeah, I completely agree with Gus. 
But nonetheless, there are a lot of accusations that the ministerial code has been breached in one way or another. And what the public would naturally think about that is that there is more breaching, at least potential breaching, going on. Do you think there is more of it or do we just have a particularly good and diligent press or, you know, certainly an inquisitive press which uncovers this stuff more often? I wonder if it's partly sort of changing social expectations that sort of, A, the pandemic brought government into people's lives in a way that it hadn't done before, I think, or at least Mm. in, in living memory for a long time. And so because everybody was going through that kind of collective experience that was incredibly difficult and we were seeing the prime minister on the TV screen every afternoon and then there were the revelations around the parties and so on and so forth. There was a lot of kind of public anger and it made it very real what the ministerial code was and what expectations we have of politicians in a way that I don't think had ever been crystallised for the man on the street previously. I think part of it is, as you say, the press. And actually, we had um, on our podcast, if I can make a plug for the Inside Briefing podcast from the Institute, we had Harry York from the Sunday Times on last week. And he was saying all of the ministerial resignations, so Dominic Raab's bullying, Nadim Zahawi's tax fares, and um, and indeed the Swale Braverman investigation, you know, they came from journalism. They came from stories um, in the press, not because the prime minister or someone in the cabinet office got wind of something and decided to investigate it and tell the world about it afterwards. So I think the press is trying to look into these things, which is good because we should expect our leaders to to behave well and they should face kind of scrutiny on this front. But I do think as well, I think, yeah, part of it is a, a sort of changing level of expectations. Yeah, I mean, you know, people have written PhDs about the loss of deference to our political leaders and stuff, you know, perhaps 50, 60 years ago, we wouldn't have asked difficult questions and now we have much higher expectations. The other thing to mention, obviously, as well, you can't talk about anything in politics and standards without talking about it, but MPs' expenses, I think, did a huge amount of damage to people's faith in politicians and we are still really living in the aftermath of that scandal where people really don't trust their politicians and there is almost an expectation that they're all kind of, you know, on the take and and taking the mickey and so people are, I think, quick to point the fingers as well. I think culturally as well, it's quite interesting because we, when when Yes Minister and then later when Yes Prime Minister came out, the whole point of that was that civil servants would keep ministers under control mm. and the ministers would try to make decisions, whether bad or good, and um, civil servants would stop them. And then later you had the thick of it where it the special advisors showing the extent of their power. And... It's interesting in that context, isn't it? Because I think we have less idea of how government works behind the scenes, perhaps. And Mm. perhaps we're less interested than we used to be. And we focus more on the individual politicians. I think think that's definitely, yeah, as you say. I mean, you know... uh, talking to colleagues earlier like how how long will we keep talking about Boris Johnson? He's going to be a figure in our politics for, for decades to come still, isn't he? But he was such a personality politician, right? He made everything about him. You know, he's Boris, he was on Have I Got News For You, et cetera, et cetera. Like, he focused, I think, a lot of political coverage on himself. A very clever strategy, great for him. But it, it has kind of changed our relationship with government, I think. You know, we, we are much more focused on individuals. And I think the stuff around standards and ethics, it has just... As I say, I think it risks sort of almost going too far now where, you know, we're in a kind of holier than now kind of Puritan way of thinking about everything. And anyone who's alleged to have done anything wrong must be sort of publicly pilloried and, and must resign. And I think that's unhealthy because everyone is is human. And I think Labour are also setting very high standards for themselves that inevitably, if they do get into government, inevitably someone will make a mistake. And 
there will be a ministerial code investigation. And then will they be happy with the kind of culture they've created of hauling people into parliament to answer questions about every allegation and demanding resignations? I think a little bit of a step back and a bit of kind of reflection on what exactly it is we are asking of the system, I think would be helpful. Tim, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this episode of The Bunker, you might consider backing us on Patreon. It's as little as £3 a month. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast. I'm Ross Taylor, and thanks for listening. Good news! Your favourite history nerds are back! Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well... I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. The Bunker was written and presented by Ros Taylor. The producer was Chris Jones, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.